So last week we started a new series called God Meant It for Good. God Meant It for Good, looking at the gospel according to the life of Joseph. And last week we introduced ourselves to the main characters of this series. We met Jacob, that foolish father who repeats the mistakes of his own family by playing favorites with his sons. Then we met Joseph, remember him, this distasteful wee punk who badmouths his brothers before going on to brag about how one day they'll bow down before him. And then we met these brothers themselves, this hate-filled motley crew, so bitter that they can't even say shalom to Joseph when they meet him around the house. Now, along with these characters, we also introduced ourselves to the primary theme of this series. We said that the Bible is not primarily written to show us how we can be good people. No, the Bible is primarily written to show how good God has been to us. And this week we're going to see this theme begin to play out through these characters, though perhaps not in the way we might expect. So let's pick up our Bibles, turn to chapter 37, verse 12, working our way through it together and and hearing the first thing we need to hear from this text, the first thing we need to hear, point one, the screams of Joseph, his plight as we find him in this text. As we start in verse 12, Jacob sends Joseph off to Shechem to check on his brothers and off he goes in his fancy coat to do just that. Well, turns out he can't find them and as he's wandering in the field, unsure maybe he's about to give up and go home, he bumps into a random man, a man who we've not heard of before and won't hear of again, who's just happened to overhear the brothers' travel plans and sends him off in the right direction. Well, verse 18 and following, Joseph goes to find them and his brothers see him coming on the horizon. And they plan quite the welcome party. You see it there? They say, here comes this dreamer. This dreamer always with his head in the clouds. Well, now's our chance. Let's kill him. Let's kill him and throw his body in this pit and then we'll tell everyone that he was killed by by a wild animal and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Well, there's agreement, but as he comes a, a little closer, it seems that Reuben gets a little nervous because he now interjects and speaks up and says, you know what, guys, this, this seems a little rough. He is our brother after all. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. Now, we know that his intentions were good. However, the brothers leap upon this as a kind of strange and bizarre improvement. Okay, let's not kill him. Let's just leave him here to die right? Um, An improvement that could only be seen as such in the eyes of these hateful brothers. Well, verse 23 and following, you see, Joseph arrives and the violence begins. And the vocabulary that's used is ferocious. First in verse 23, we read that they stripped Joseph of his coat. This term stripped is a word that's used to describe how you would skin a dead Animal. You can imagine the ferocity of glee with which they tear this hated vesture off his back. Then verse 24, we read that they cast him into a pit. The term cast is also not a a generic word, but is a, a word that's used to describe how you would dump a dead body into a grave. 
And in the Old Testament, wherever this term is used to refer to someone who is alive, it's always used to describe how they've been abandoned to death. So then, after this desperate violence against their own flesh and blood, see what they do, verse 25? They sit down and eat lunch. They pull out some pita bread, pull out some hummus, carry on like it's just another day. Well, in the rest of verse 25, as they're filling their bellies together, along comes a caravan of merchants from who are on their way to Egypt. And one of the other brothers, Judah, has this great idea in verse 26. He says, hey, guys, what, you know, what will actually profit us if we just kill him? I've, I've got a better idea. How about we sell him, right? Then, not only will his blood not be on our hands, but we'll also make a pretty penny. Double bonus, ding, ding, ding. Everyone thinks this is a great idea. The logic is flawless, and so they do. They pull him out the pit, and they sell him pocketing 20 shekels of silver in the process. Then we're told, verse 28, key detail, his new owners take Joseph to Egypt. Now we'll return to that, the significance of that in a moment. But for now, can you imagine all of this from Joseph's perspective? You know, not long before, just back in verse 12, he'd been at home Secure in his father's love, wearing the coat to prove it. He'd gone to see his brothers and then violence at their hands. Stripped, cast into a pit, left for dead. Perhaps hope rose as they pulled him up until they realized that they were only doing so in order to sell him. To strange people who were traveling to a strange land. Far from home, far from love, far from all the dreams that he had ever had. What must it have been like in the darkness of that pit? We don't actually get his words recorded in this chapter, but in chapter 42, verse 21, we're told that he did scream. He cried out to his brothers, begging them for mercy, begging them to spare him. No doubt he cried out to God as well. We read that his soul was in great distress, but, but nobody answered him. He was just left to suffer in the pit. And I wonder this morning if some of you have experienced, or perhaps even experiencing now, the pain that feels like being in the pit. The pain and sorrow of being in the pit. One commentator says, the vessels of our lives are fragile craft, easily overturned by the powerful storms of life. That sickness that turns serious, or that loved one who dies, that marriage that that breaks, or that relationship that becomes abusive, or that accident that proves debilitating, or that failure to achieve some personal hope or dream. Commentator says, the storms of life can indeed be severe, and they are not easily weathered. They're not easily weathered. The problem with real life is that it can just get a little real. Pain and sorrow and hardship and difficulty are part of what it means to be human. Perhaps you saw in the news this week a tragic example of 
Katie Malone, who's a staffer for a representative from Baltimore. She is uh, recovering in hospital right now after a fire in her home killed six of her nine children. Can you imagine the, the pain of that? Earlier on, one of our elders, Ed Sinclair, prayed for a former fellow and staff member here, Frank Wong, and his wife, Sarah, who had a baby on Thursday, and found that the joy and celebration of that moment quickly turned to fear and despair as this wee one faced serious and significant health challenges. The storms of life, life's events... It can hit us out of nowhere and can feel like a hurricane that you know you can't withstand. And we've all had struggles that have made us feel this way. We've all had things that have made us feel like we're in the pit. We're not trying to compare it as any better or worse to some of the tragic examples we see in the world around us, but we know within our own hearts that we've all had those kinds of difficulties and that some of us are being buffeted by them even now. And so the screams of Joseph remind us that the Bible is a realistic book. It addresses real life in a real way. This isn't just all happiness and fairy tales. This is coming to meet us where we might really find ourselves this morning. God speaking to our hurting world and even to our hurting souls. Well, okay we say, but... What does he say? What does he say to our hurting world and to our hurting stories? What does he say in response to the screams of Joseph? And what might he therefore say in response to us? Well, that takes us to the second thing we need to hear from this text. After the screams of Joseph, point two, we hear, strangely, the silence of God. Did you notice that as we read the text? God doesn't say anything in this passage. Uh, he's strangely silent and we're expecting him to we keep expecting him to to appear but then he doesn't you know at this point in the sermon I should be saying hey so everybody turn your attention to verse 30 where the Lord appears and says bozos kill not thy brother nor throw him in a pit nor sell him thou art the worst and I am the Lord right Uh, or like if not God then like an angel or a prophet or some burning bush like give me something right Uh, but no there's just silence. If we were to read letter God's own words in this chapter, the chapter would be entirely black. So let's not let the silence fool us. Don't let the silence fool you. God may be silent in this chapter, but he is not absent from it. He may be silent, but he is not absent. What we see in this chapter is a remarkable example of God speaking through his providence. What is his providence? It's that complex, profound, and ultimately beautiful way in which God works through the ordinary events of human history in order to be good to his people. How he intervenes in the ordinary events of history in order to be good to his people. See, God had a dream for Joseph's Life. Now, it wasn't the same dream Joseph had for his life, but God had a dream for Joseph's life. And do you remember what it was? It was that he would end up in Egypt. 
Why? Well, we'll discover as we work our way through this text that God desired for Joseph to end up in Egypt because he planned for him to come into a position of, of power and prominence there that would enable him to save his family when a severe famine struck. And in saving his family, he would not just save those who who are nearest and dearest to him. He would also preserve that family, that family tree, that lineage, that messianic line that would ultimately lead to the birth of Jesus. In other words, God's dream for Joseph was that he would end up in Egypt in order to secure the physical and spiritual salvation of his family and indeed of this family. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good, and so he worked, he intervened in the ordinary events of human history to make sure that it was so. We may not hear him speak, but did you notice all the coincidences in this text that take Joseph to Egypt? For example, his father just happened to send Joseph to see his brothers, and Joseph just happened to meet some random guy that we've never heard of before and never hear of again who just happened to overhear the brothers' travel plans to send him to Dothan. Reuben just happened to be there to save him from being killed. The pit they threw him in, isn't that a great detail in verse 24, just happened to be empty. It didn't have any water in it, so he didn't drown in, in 15 feet of water. But then Reuben just happened not to be there in order to save him from being sold. Uh, These merchants, of course, just happened to be passing by Dothan. And, of course, they just happened to be on their way to Egypt. There's many more that we could think of in this text. The point simply is this. All the things that just happened in this text had to happen exactly as they did in exactly the right order, at exactly the right time, in order to get Joseph to Egypt where God wanted him to be. And if it hadn't all just happened as it did, then his brothers would have died in the famine, and the messianic line that led to Christ would have died with it. In other words, all that happened didn't just happen. God meant it all for good. Now, isn't that an encouragement when you look at your own life? When you look at your own life where things seem to be just happening, when we find ourselves in the pit and we feel that God is silent, that we can know he is at work to make his dreams for us come true. Now, of course, it's hard for us in the moment as it would have been hard for Joseph. One commentator says, not even the most skilled counselor could have explained to Joseph what on earth God was doing. You couldn't have come to Joseph in the pit and given him answers on this. It would take many years and many more twists and turns in the story before the necessity of these events would become clear. Eventually, even Joseph is glad that these things took place. But it would take a long time for him to understand why. At the end of the story, he continues, faith and hope are vindicated while doubt and despair are vanquished. Why? Because we have a God who from death brings resurrection. From death brings resurrection. And so we can have confidence that it will be the same for us. That it will be the same for us. And do you believe that? I am, I am praying for the faith to believe that. I believe that and I need help 
for my unbelief. To believe that when God is silent, he is in fact not absent. To believe that when I don't know what God is doing, God still knows what he is doing. To believe that in the end, his dreams for us will come true. They may be different to the dreams that we have for ourselves. (laughs) But in the end, he's at work for our good. And that we will be richer and deeper and better and even ultimately happier for it. To believe that while we don't know the end from the beginning... We can trust the God who does. We can trust the God who does. Do you believe this? That he might be silent but not absent, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him? We say we want to, but it's hard. Which takes us to the third thing we need to hear from this text. You see, the sovereignty of God will never itself be enough to soothe your soul. We need more than the might and power of God. Yes, you need to believe in those things, but you will never believe that God is truly in the details and certainly not that he's even in your distress unless along with his power and his might, you also believe in his love for you. You also believe in his his love for you. Does that make sense? That you need both, you need power and love? Power and love. Because if he's loving but not powerful, then maybe he can help you. Alternatively, if he's you know, powerful but not loving, then maybe he won't help you. We need both. We need confidence in his power and love. But if he is both, well, then that's what changes everything. Which is why, after the screams of Joseph and after the silence of God, in this text, we need to hear point three. Echoes of the sounds of the cross. The sounds of the cross. How can you know that God loves you? And is therefore using his might and his providence to to be good to you, even in the hard situations you find yourself and might find yourself in this morning. How can you know for sure? The Bible answers, you can know for sure because there was another son. Another son who was loved by his father, who came to his brothers who received him not who was betrayed by those closest to him, sold for shekels of silver, who was stripped naked and abandoned to die. He cried out and nobody answered. He experienced the ultimate silence of God. We can know for sure because God's providence worked to ensure that Joseph would live. And that same providence worked to ensure that Jesus would die. And he cried out his heart and he nailed up his hands and he poured out his blood in order that you might know that he loves you. You might know that he loves you. And this, at the end of the day, is what our faith is all about. Not to give us some twee answer in the midst of real pain. Not to give us some inspirational slogan that we can stick on a meme on Facebook. And not to give us just a wish, a hope a prayer, but to give us the unyielding certainty that in the midst of whatever you are going through this morning, God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, who is mighty beyond might and powerful beyond power, is in love with you. He is in love with you. And so knowing his power and his love, we find the way we think about our storms and the the way we think about our pits begins to be reshaped. When our dreams are shattered, we start to believe that God is making something better from 
the pieces. This passage, this passage isn't written to show you how to be good in the midst of pain. This passage is written to encourage us, to encourage us that even in the midst of pain, our God is being good to us. As we close, we can see in ourselves a tendency, right? A tendency, especially when things are hard, uh, to look for answers. We feel like what we, what we need is, is answers. Answers as to why something has happened, how it could have happened, how we will move on from here. But, you know, sometimes we find that answers don't come. Certainly not quickly, as was uh, Joseph's experience. And sometimes, though, we also find that it's not just that they don't come, but, you know, we need the humility to recognize that sometimes answers can't come. They can't come because even if God tried to explain it to us, we wouldn't understand. One preacher says, have you ever tried to explain to a three-year-old what it takes to go to college? You know? Well, in the same way, our minds are so small and our perspective so limited and our brains are so tiny that even if God did come and unveil his cosmic plan to us, we wouldn't get it. And just as a child who is fearful doesn't need scholastic encouragement for their future, but needs a father who will sit them on their lap. So our Lord comes to us not always with answers. He doesn't always offer answers. He always offers us, though, instead, himself. He brings his power and his love into our present, even into our pits. And when you taste him there, you find that he is enough. And so our encouragement this morning in the trial and in the pit, is not to look for answers, but to look for him. Not to look for answers, but to look for him. And he's already there. You don't need to beg him to be. You don't need to promise change behavior or intend anything at all. He's, he's already there in the gospel of his son. What we need to do is, is see him there. So read his word and spend time with him in prayer and meditate on his promises and find that he is enough. Of course, we know that nobody has this incredible sense of God's presence with them all the time. It's natural for that to come in in episodes. But if you've experienced Christ, then you've experienced it. The memory alone will sustain you, and the experience can be yours again today. This passage is not written to show us how to be good in the midst of pain. It's written to remind us that even in the midst of pain, God is at work to be good to us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on your word this morning, we are strangely grateful for the screams of Joseph, reminding us that your word deals with real life in a real way. It doesn't sugarcoat things, doesn't pretend everything's fine, but is prepared to face up to the the horror of life. And in light of that, Lord, we're, we're grateful for your silence in this text because we don't confuse it for absence. We see you at work and that gives us encouragement. It encourages us to know that you, you are using your, your power and your might to intervene in human history and even in our personal histories in order to be good to us, your people. But most of all, Lord, we're grateful for the signs of the cross, for Jesus Christ and the love that is ours in him. 
It is this knowledge of your love, this knowledge that you are for us, that gives us encouragement to believe that you will use your might and you will use your power in order to be good to us. Lord, how will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so we look to you, not for answers, but for your presence. We pray especially, Lord, for those who describe themselves as being in that pit this morning. Um, Lord, overwhelm them, we pray, with the knowledge of your goodness. In the person of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.